got your Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah. We have found ourselves in the midst of probably the greatest messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. These verses that we're going to explore today and tomorrow, or tomorrow, <laughs> next week, are quoted many times at Christmas. And they speak of a Messiah that is coming. Now last week we talked about the fact that a new city was coming. We talked about the new Zion, the new Jerusalem. The city of Zion will one day be our home if we are believers and followers of Jesus Christ. But until then, we live in a world that's not Zion. We live in a world that's, that's not our home. We live in the world of Babylon. And if you don't believe that, spend some time on YouTube, going through some videos, watch the news, and you'll soon realize that we are living in Babylon. But God is going to call us out of it. He calls us out of it now. Now, as we're looking at Isaiah, where we know that this is God speaking to the the exiles who are actually in the actual city of Babylon. They have been in exile, and God has kind of called them out. So here's what it says in, verse, in Isaiah 52. We're going to start with verse 11. It says, Depart, depart, leave, come out. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now he's obviously talking to the priests. But as we know that we are all priests, we are all servants of God, we are all ministers of the word, which is the most holy thing we can carry. So he's also talking to us. For you shall not go in haste, and you shall not go in flight. Don't be afraid. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. When I, when I read that last line, I, I, seem to, I always think of the fact that when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and the pillar of cloud was going before them and they reached the Sea of Reeds and they're all worried because what are we going to do? And Moses raises his hand, the water parts, and, but we know that the Egyptians were hot on their tail and what happens is the pillar of fire stands before the Egyptians and they cannot go any further. God is your rear God, not guard. Nobody can sneak up on you. So Israel is being called here to leave Babylon and to return to Zion. They had to leave Egypt. They couldn't stay in Egypt. They had to leave Babylon. Though we know from history that not all of them did so. Not all of them returned from Babylon to Zion. So they had a choice to make. God's calling you out, but you don't. You make a choice. Are you going to live in Zion or are you going to live in Babylon? And you and I have that choice to make today. Are we going to live in Zion or are we going to live in Babylon? We can't and we must not remain in Babylon. We must decide where we truly are going to live. See, you and I, we must always run from a false system. A system of first, self-salvation, which has been the system that's been around since the garden and Satan tempted Adam and Eve. 
We also need to run from our systems of false truth. There's plenty of false truth out there, and that seems like a di- strange dichotomy, false truth. False truth is truth that the world says is true, but we know is false. And many in this world are going to be deceived by that false truth. And I, I've been debating, I, I'm, I don't know how many people are interested, but I'm, I'm thinking about maybe starting a, maybe either a Sunday night where we're going to sit down and we're just going to start talking about what's going on in the world. And we're going to talk about how it relates to Scripture, how it relates to Revelation, how it relates to the whole Bible. I'm debating, praying about that right now because there's, there's a lot going on and I'm afraid that many are going to fall for the false truth. Now, understand, when I say we can't live in this world of Babylon, it doesn't mean that we have to separate ourselves completely. You know, we're not all building bunkers. There's no bunker here at the church where we can all run to and hide. You're not building... Uh, well, maybe you are building bunkers in your backyard. I don't know. If, maybe you just haven't told me about it. So that tells me something there. We're not, we're not to separate currently. We're not to separate physically from this world. But we are definitely supposed to separate spiritually. Paul tells the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he says, I, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So apparently he has written previously to this church. The church at Corinth was his probably his least favorite church. He had the most trouble with the church at Corinth. I'm afraid we are the church at Corinth. At least this world is. He says, don't associate with sexually immoral people. And then he goes on to, to clarify this. this. is now not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He's not saying that if you work someplace and you know someone is sexually immoral, that you can't work there or you can't associate with them at the grocery store. Because in order to do that, he says, and, and he doesn't stop with the sexually immoral, he says, or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Because if you were to do that, in order to not associate with those who are sinners, we would have to be taken out of the world. And that's not his wish. That's not the wish of the Lord. Okay? That's not what he wants us to do. The day is coming when he will take care of that, yes. But not yet. Paul says in verse 11, he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. Now, what is he saying? Remember last week we talked about the fact that no sinner will enter this new city of Zion. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, listen, if you know of a brother or sister, I use air quotes in that, in Christ, who is sinning, and you confront them, biblically, and they don't change their ways, you are not to associate with them. You're not to bring that into the church. And that's, that's a pretty high standard, but that is the standard that God has put in place. And here's where he clarifies. I know many of you probably know that probably most people, if you, if you say something against something in this world, and somebody say, well, doesn't the Bible tell you you're not supposed to judge? Paul clarifies this here. He says, for, for what have I to do with judging the outsiders? He's saying, I don't, I don't have to judge the world. I don't have to. God's going to do that. But he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 
See, you and I, we have this new identity in Christ. We are not like we were before. We're not supposed to be. We're supposed to put all that to death. We're supposed to put all that aside. We're, it's not, And it's not that we're living pure and holy lives just so we can say, hey, look at me, I'm perfect. No, it's because we love Christ so much we're willing to put all of that away. We have a, a new dignity as part of the priesthood of believers. And we, we carry that dignity with us. And it comes from God. And we carry the word of God. We are the ones who are carrying the special things of God. So we are called to not defile ourselves with the things of this world. And I know it's not an easy task because it's out there and it's rampant. We must, we must not allow it in the church. See, Peter tells us that you know, in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, you're a chosen race, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. He calls us out of this world of Babylon into the light of Zion. We are to share that with the world. We are to tell people why we live the way we live. Unashamedly, I think this is one of the problems that's happened in the modern church is we've, we've, made our, we've made our faith so personal that we don't live it out publicly. Well, you do you and I'll do me. That doesn't work. You can do you, but understand that. You, well, you doing you, and this is what you tell those who you really care about. You share the gospel with them, and they let the Holy Spirit, and if they don't change their ways, then... Fine, you continue in your relationships hoping and praying for them consistently. But when you have people in the church and they don't change their ways, you are not to associate with them. Period. You and I have been entrusted with the gospel to carry it to the nations. We have to be clear in our influence and our message. Doesn't it... Don't you think it would give a strange message to the world if we say, you know, God has changed me. I got Jesus in my heart and and it's made me different. Hey, what are you doing? Hey, let's go do that. And and you're doing something that's a sin? Or Or you're having this attitude that's not loving or kind? I mean, it's it's that's why a lot of people say that Christians are, you know, hypocrites. Because we say one thing and do another. We need to say and do the same thing. (laughs) And it better be the right thing. The gospel is holy and it's pure. We have to put away anything that might besmirch, 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 you know, something that anything that taints the, the, the image of the gospel. We have to put it aside. We have to. In the name of Jesus Christ, we must not hamper the gospel spread and how it's going to reach the world. And many times, you and I get between, get in the way of the gospel going out into the world. We have not done very well at keeping things away from what might give the gospel a bad name. You and I have no right to contaminate the beauty of the gospel.
And I think that's one of the reasons why God had planned for a Messiah, to show us what it means to do what we need to do, how to live a life we're supposed to live. In verse 13 of Isaiah 52, he begins talking about his servant again. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah is talking about Jesus here. He's talking about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He act, Jesus acted wisely while he was here in human form. His mission succeeded. It may not seem like it, but his purpose, God's purpose in his life was fulfilled. He rose from the dead. He was lifted up to the right hand of the Father, exalted above all else, above everything else. We also know that he was lifted up on the cross. Not exactly what you consider being exalted, but he was. Kind of repulsive if you, if you think about it. I didn't want to go into the details, but... The details of a crucifixion are literally repulsive. Most of us, it would have an MA rating if we show it on TV. It is extremely gruesome. So he is repulsive, and yet the whole process of that redeems us. Jesus isn't to be pitied, though, just because he suffered on the cross. We're to worship him. We're to give him honor and glory because that's what he deserves. But see, that's not always our first human response when we encounter Christ on the cross. To be crucified is a gruesome thing. We're kind of, mm, do we really want to look? I know some of us are like, you know, we, we stop every time there's an auto accident seeing if we can see anything. But it's a gruesome thing. But he, it, it was a success. It was what had to happen. Verse 14, he says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You could not tell he was even human. So shall he sprinkle many nations. We'll get to that in a second. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Ooh, there is a strange little turn of phrase. They haven't been told it, but they see it. They haven't heard it, but they understand it. When Jesus is willing to call on the cross, like I said, his appearance was, was ex of extreme suffering. It became so extreme that they could barely tell he was even human. But understand that his extreme suffering is a measure of the extreme power to cleanse sinners. The price he had to pay had to be extreme because of the sin of the world that he took on him. And it is because of that extreme suffering and his dying on the cross that he's going to sprinkle many nations. Now, it's kind of a strange way to think about it, but we've got to understand that this idea of sprinkling. Isaiah's referencing back to a, a practice of the Jewish priest. In Leviticus 14, 7, he says, And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him, he's talking about blood, who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the op open field. Leprosy was probably one of the worst things you could have. It, you, it shunned you from society. 
And usually, the Jews usually show associated leprosy with you, you've committed a sin, or your parents committed a sin. We know that because the disciples asked Jesus, well, who, why is this man blind? Did his parents sin or did he sin? And, and they didn't understand it. It's not just because you sin. There's a purpose behind it. But leprosy was a thing that made you a pariah. So what would happen is, this was a, a sprinkling was an important part of the atonement process. Whenever a person had leprosy, they'd have to, and if they were cured from it, because it did happen periodically, that they would be cured from it. Either Jesus cured people from it, but other times, it would just, it would, your body would overcome it. You'd have to go to the priest, and you'd have to show the priest that you were healed. So once you presented yourself to the priest, they would, be, you would be sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice. And that was a way they would show that you have been cleaned. You are clean. The disease has been washed away. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's that idea. That's where it comes from. Because then once that happens, then that healed person would be accepted back into society. On the Day of Atonement, a priest would go and they would, they would have two, two different rams that they would have and they would sacrifice them. But the priest would go around and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Cut. He'd sprinkle it on the tent. He'd sprinkle it on the different places. And he'd go to the seat, the, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He'd sprinkle blood on it. What it was doing, it was supposed to be atoning for sin. It was supposed to be, supposed to be making that thing pure enough to be in the presence of God. Fit to be in God's presence. Priests themselves at times would be sprinkled with the water of purification. But see, the, here's the beauty of what Christ did on the cross. Christ is our, our high priest. He is our sacrifice. There's no need for cleaning anymore. You and I, if you're a believer in Christ, you have Christ in your heart, you have the Holy Spirit, you've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, you are made good enough to be in the presence of God. The whole purpose for Christ dying on the cross was so that he could mend that relationship between man and God and he could again be in our presence. His blood is enough to cleanse us, to cleanse the nations. And this sprinkling makes us who were once unwashed, who are unclean, And who are outcast, we are now fit to be in the presence of the most holy God. We're made clean by the sprinkling of his blood. Our sins are atoned for. And who's going to be sprinkled? The nations. This is not just a Jewish thing. Jesus was not just the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior of the whole world. He's the Savior of the Gentiles, all nations. We go to the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people, people for God from every tribe, every language, and people and nation. The world. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, and the gospel of the King of kings will, will leave the kings of this world speechless. Now think about that. Most of our leaders have a lot to say, I'll be honest with you, when they should probably be quiet more than, well, certain leaders should definitely be quiet. They do nothing but stick their foot in their mouth. But they're going to be speechless when they realize the truth of the gospel. This is why we need to continually pray for our leaders. 
Think about the think about what would happen. What would happen in Canada if Justin Trudeau had an experience with Jesus Christ? Now, you ask me, how do I know he, he's not a believer? I, I, you, will, you judge a person's salvation by their fruit, and that man has no fruit. If it does, it's not good. Imagine what that Canada would be like if he was living his faith. Think what... Think what our Congress would be like if the men, in con- men and women in Congress who truly believed in Christ actually lived their faith. And some do. I'm not saying some don't. But it's not easy in the halls of our government. I'm not even going to think about what would happen if our president actually lived his faith. Because I don't think he does either. I can tell by his actions. And if he claims he's a believer, I have every right to judge him. But I also need to be praying for him. Because if he does live his faith, think of the reach that he could have. Now, Jesus was lifted up. Jesus was our salvation. But he was also rejected. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 1, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, I don't know about you, but for me, as many times it's hard for me to understand why people hear the gospel and they don't believe. I mean, come on, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I understand it. It made sense to me. For me, it was an intellectual thing. Once I realized it intellectually, I realized it with my brain, I agreed with it, then I surrendered my heart, and God changed me. But it's hard sometimes for us to understand why somebody would not believe immediately. We may have been exposed to the gospel at a very young age, and we've lived most of our life in the culture of Christianity, so it's kind of hard when people just don't believe like we do. But the reality is that the gospel is rather difficult to believe, especially when you're blinded to the truth. Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, in their case, he's talking about non-believers, the God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you can understand why when you share the gospel with somebody, they struggle with it. Why sometimes they don't even believe it. No matter what you tell them. Because they're being blinded by the evil one. And even in our own community, there are those out there, many out there, who have never even heard the gospel. It's hard to believe, but I believe in this country there are numerous people who have not heard the gospel. The true gospel. I, I, there's a lot of people out there who've heard a false gospel, but the true gospel of salvation. And we know they need to hear it because Paul tells us in Romans, Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. We we. We get salvation. We start believing in Christ for our salvation when we hear the gospel. They haven't heard, so they can't believe. And even if they did hear, they don't understand the implications of the gospel because the evil one is trying to hide it from them. So the Holy Spirit has to break through. And the Holy Spirit has to give them the ability to hear. And many do not understand because God hasn't revealed himself to them yet. Jesus said in John 6, he says, No one comes to me, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
I mean, true repentance is something that we is something that God gives us and is only possible by grace. We can't repent unless God gives us repentance. We can't believe unless God gives us that belief. We can't believe unless God calls us to believe. So when we hear the gospel, God will then give us the repentance and give us faith. And when he sees that in us, he justifies us and declares us clean by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. See, the gospel is so hard to believe that it's only when Jesus is revealed by God through the Father, through the Holy Spirit, that anybody can actually believe the message of the gospel. So that's why we need to be praying that people's eyes would be open to the gospel. Before you go and share the gospel with anybody, you need to pray, Lord, whoever you bring into my path, Lord, help their eyes to be open. Help the evil one to not blind them. Call them, Father. In fact, I, we always pray for the person of peace who's that person that God is calling to him and he's just waiting for you to go to them to share in the gospel and their eyes will be open because God's calling them. The arm of the Lord, that's Jesus Christ, must be revealed before his gospel can be believed. Because see, we, we live in this world with eyes covered in a veil. We've noticed that. There are some people to this day who are still living, <laughs> living in a 2020 veil. They don't want to believe anything that's been coming out about the truth about everything. I'm not going to say what the words are, but that's the truth. They've been living in a veil. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, not like Moses, because remember Moses, he had to veil his face when he came down from being in the presence of God because it shines so bright. Who would put a veil on his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what had been was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. We're going to wonder, why don't the Jews believe? But well, the, the, the Jews don't believe because their veil is over their eyes. They, they're, they're, not, they have, they're not going to believe yet. Time will come. We look at Revelation. They're going to believe one day. Probably not all of them, but many will. The veil is there unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Understand that you and I don't live with a veil over our face. We can see, we can look, we can see God working in our world. I look and I can see the evil in this world. But I can also see the good. I can also see where God is working, where God is moving. Why? Because I don't have a veil over my face. It's been removed through Jesus Christ. So it's this joint effort that we're in. The gospel must be proclaimed by human messengers, those with beautiful feet, like we talked about last week. Plus, it must be revealed by the Spirit of God to those who are hearing it. So when you share the gospel with somebody and they don't believe, it's not your fault if you shared the gospel. They just haven't, it hasn't been revealed to them yet. Pray for them. Now this arm of the Lord, Jesus Christ, he also had a very unimpressive origin and appearance. Isaiah 53, 2. It's interesting that it's leading to this because when we get into next week, we'll get into the 
this, the, what everybody knows from Isaiah 53, which is always read at Christmas time, but he had a very unimpressive origin. It says here in, in verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, think about this. We, 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 we treasure Christmas, right? We, we look at Christmas and we look at the manger, we look at the angels, the shepherds, the wise men who came later. But we look at the story of Christmas and we're so, it's so awesome. We just love it. It's, we think about all the wonderful Christmases we've had in the past. We cherish it. But you know what the reality is? It's not a very impressive story on the surface. It's rather inimpressive, unimpressive. In his humanity, you know, Jesus sprung up as a stump of Jesse. A stump is basically a dead tree, right? Been cut off. No one expects a stump to grow. In fact, if you've got a stump, you don't want it to grow. In fact, you want to get it out of there. Unless you kill the stump, it's more than likely going to maybe send up some shoots. The roots are. And the family tree of Jesse had seemed to be dead. It had been many, many years the Israelites had been in slavery, dominated by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans during the first century B.C. and into the first century A.D. There had not been a single king in the line of David, on from the house of David, on the throne since the exile in Babylon. The line of David was thought to be sterile and no power, no strength. So when, if you were from the line of David... That was just an honorary title. It really didn't mean anything. We know that Mary and Joseph were both from the line of David. didn't mean anything. didn't give them, get them anywhere in the society of their day. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was called the son of David by the angel. But it did not, it, it, it did not mean much to a carpenter. Being in the line of David just really didn't mean a whole lot. It didn't get him anywhere in life. You know, he didn't have business cards that says, Joseph, carpenter. Son of David. It didn't do him any good. But Jesus grew up as a tender shoot in dry land, in dry ground. It was thought to be dead. I, I got some plants in my greenhouse. I'm still trying to I'm still trying to get my gardening going. And I've got some places where my cucumbers are just growing like crazy. And then I got these other pots here that are just So, so they look like they're dead, but what am I doing? I'm still watering it. I'm not going to give up. It looks like dry, dead ground, but those shoots might still come up. Mary, his mother, would conceive without a husband. So Jesus, in reality, had no earthly father, biologically. Jesus would be born in an ordinary way, in a very ordinary stable, making his appearance ordinary. I was going through my sermons, doing a sermon short. I mean, Christmas in 26, from 2016, and I, I came upon a sermon. I'm talking about how it wasn't a silent night. We have no proof that Jesus didn't cry. I'm sure that's why I, I love the, the the Nativity movie because Mary is in a lot of pain. Mary was not was not excused from the curse. It was not a silent night. Not to mention the animals were being invaded. Their, their space was, you know, I walk into the backyard, the chickens go crazy. Because they don't like me in the backyard, even though they belong to me and they don't realize that if it wasn't for me, they'd be dead. <laughs> I pay for their food. 
okay? So, <laughs> of course, I eat their eggs. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it wasn't a quiet night. It was, there was nothing, there was, it was a little stable in the midst of this little bitty town of Nazareth. It was nothing extraordinary. Besides the angels announcing his birth to the shepherds, the star that would ultimately guide the wise men a few years later, Jesus would have an ordinary birth. And once he was born, Jesus grew up just like every other ordinary Jewish boy. In Luke 2.52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, that's exactly how a Jewish boy is supposed to grow up. I hope my children grow in stature and in wisdom. Sometimes I wonder... But then I remember, I'm human too, and they probably are emulating me. But understand, there was nothing special about Jesus' growing up. We don't see much about it until the age of 12. And even then, it's, he's, he's, in the, he's in the temple, and he's talking to the leaders. And yeah, that's pretty extraordinary, but Mary and Joseph are like, where have you been? How dare you do this to us? He was ordinary. There was nothing special about him. The only thing that was different about him is that he never sinned. I mean, could you imagine being James or Joseph or Simon or Judas, some of his half-brothers, and your mother coming to you and saying, you know, I wish you were more like your brother Jesus. <laughs> like, Mom, he's God. Not possible. He's perfect. We know. We get it. You know? It would have been tough. He never gave any trouble, except, like I said, when he was 12. <laughs> and he stayed back in the temple. And after that, he obeyed his parents perfectly. From the age of 12. Jesus never sinned. You know, and 1 John 3, 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away the sins. In him there is no sin. Now as an adult, Jesus looked like a very ordinary Jewish man. The image that we see in Jesus of Nazareth, you know, this, you know, Caucasian, tall, beautiful beard, beautiful long hair. That's not Jesus. That's not Jewish at all. He was Jewish. He didn't look like that. Greatly exaggerated and Americanized, the movies are. It says in verse 2, he had no, of Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Even if we've lived back in those days and we saw Jesus and we walked with him and we saw him turn water into wine and we saw him heal the sick and we saw him heal the raise Lazarus, even then we would not have been able to believe that he was who he was unless God revealed it to us. That's why when he was on the, on the mountain and he says, he tells them that in order to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, he lost most of his followers, except for the twelve. And Jesus says, aren't you going to leave too? And they said, well, where will we go? You have the word of life. God had revealed to them who he was, even though they didn't fully understand it yet. Verse, 50, verse 3 of, verse, of chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The leaders and, and the people did not as so much hate Jesus as they underestimated who he was. They knew he was a great teacher. They didn't realize that he was the creator of the universe. All things were made through him and by him and for him. 
They underestimated. They put him lower than he should have been, and they rejected him. They heard him speak. They heard him teach. They saw the miracles he performed. They accused him at times of doing it by the power of Satan. He says, no, wait a minute, a house divided against itself can't stand. I don't do this by the power of Satan. And yet they still rejected him and made him a man of sorrows. And why was this done? This was all done to fulfill the perfect will of God the Father. Jesus was a rejected man so that he would be accepted as a perfect sacrifice to God the Father so that you and I can be accepted as children of God. We are redeemed so that we can be in the perfect presence of God, so that we can live in the city of Zion and come out of the city of Babylon. And this presence is better than anything we could ever imagine. Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what Jesus left. Jesus left that to come down here to die, to become a man of sorrows, to be lifted up on a cross, and yet to die and rise again and be lifted up again to the hand of the Father. Because of that, we can go to the book of Hebrews and see what it says about that. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Yes, Jesus dies as a man of sorrow being familiar with suffering, being familiar with temptation, being familiar with pain, being familiar with with people who are going to reject him. People close to him are going to deny him. One of his very own is going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. He knows what it's like to be human. He experienced things that many of us are never going to have to experience. Why? Because he experienced it for us. So what do we take from this? First of all, i got to ask, have you believed, truly believed, that Jesus of Nazareth is really God? Do you truly trust that he is God? Is he really, is he glorious? Is he at the right hand of God? Have you believed that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior and that you need to repent of your sins? And I'll tell you, Repentance doesn't stop just at one time. We need to live lives of repentance, life of repentance that we go every day we are repenting for the sin we commit because we're struggling, being sanctified daily more and more, hopefully more like Christ. We all are flawed. We're all human. We're not perfect yet. The day is coming when we will be. But it's not me who does it. It's going to be Jesus Christ. It's going to be God who changes me, us in an instant to be perfect. In the meantime, we are going to sin. We're going to struggle. We're going to hurt each other. But we need to be, we need to repent. We need to say that we are crushed, we're broken for our sins. We need a Savior. And Jesus is the only one who can save us. There's no other name under heaven given to man in which we can be saved. I plead with you, call on his name to be saved. Don't leave today with unfinished business with God. Don't leave here lost. Plead with God to reveal Christ to you daily. Here. 
and believe. First of all, exalt Christ higher than you do. You're like, well, I, I, I exalt Christ really high. No, you need to exalt Him more. You need to set Him higher in your life than anything else. Those of us who believe may still underestimate Christ. It's very easy for us to underestimate Him. We get so wrapped up in this world, we think there's nothing that can save us. Instead, we need to be turning to Christ because Christ can get, take care of our problems. He's not going to take them away, sorry. But He may take away your attitude about it. And I, I believe me, most of my problems, most of the issues, most of the times I'm fearful, most of the times I'm struggling in this life is because I have the wrong attitude about my life and about who Christ is in my life. It is, we've got to change that. We need to exalt Him higher and turn to Him, bring our burdens to Him, and He will give us His yoke, which is light and easy. And in this sense, we are still despising Him when we underestimate Him. Because we don't esteem him properly. He deserves so much glory. The two songs we sang this morning don't even begin to cover the glory that he deserves. Pray for God to pour out his spirit upon you. That you will exalt Christ at a level that he deserves in your life. Pray that you can see the greatness of Jesus in your life. We need to meditate on the immeasurable suffering of Christ. We need to meditate on what he did for us. We, we, we can't forget it. We can't, I think that's the other thing. We, we, you know, as a church, I, I hope I don't do this. I try not to just, you know, we build up to Easter. We, oh, we have Good Friday and we, and we have, you know, Easter Sunday. And that's the big thing. And then we go about our ways. That's one reason why I, I try to go through the Bible the way I do. Words, uh, verse by verse. Because I think it all speaks to the gospel. And it all speaks to the cross and to the resurrection. We can't just... We can't just belittle that or do that just one time. We need to meditate on it. Think about it. Think about his suffering and, 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 and be humbled by his grace. God loved you perfectly by pouring out his wrath on his son. His love for you is immeasurable. Because while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. We didn't have to make ourselves perfect and presentable because we're not. And you need to feed your faith with his words. Pray for a hunger and a thirst for the word of God. That's one reason why I send out, you know, every, every day I send out a prayer. And it has a Bible, it has a verse ahead of it. I want us to be in the word. If you go to our Facebook page, there's a verse every single day. If I had time, I'd probably do it every, every, uh, twice a day if I could, if possible. We need to be absorbing his word by listening to her. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. We need to hear his word. We need to speak his word. We need to pray for a hunger for God's word. 